This is Binod Shankar and you're listening to the Real Finance Mentor podcast from the realfinancementor.com. The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. I would think why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it one relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical practical issues. Number 2, authentic. No bullshit, no sidestepping. The topics, guests and questions are all from that perspective. And number 3, take a chartered accountant CFA charter holder, add 17 plus years as a corporate warrior, mix in 10 years of entrepreneurship, through a decade of full-time CFA training, add speaking, mentoring, cycling and mountaineering, and that's me. Welcome to the real finance mentor, or as I call it, RFM. Hi everyone, this is Binod Shankar here, the real finance mentor. uh bringing you at another episode of the RFM podcast that is designed to deliver inspiration and insight for careers in finance specifically i mean always looking for special guests people who can come and talk about their vast experience and their challenges and their successes and today i do have a very special guest uh someone i have been looking forward to hosting on this podcast for quite a long time and lo and behold is finally here my guest today is paul smith now there's a long introduction to about paul smith um i think it's well deserved and it's worth going through paul has more than 30 years of leadership experience in the asset management industry including over 20 years in asia paul started his career in asset management at armitage international an alternative funds management company progressively taking up roles of increasing responsibility across europe over 11 years the last seven of course as the firm's ceo paul then joined bank of bermuda in hong kong as asia head of security services in 1996 after hsbc's acquisition of the bank in 2004 he served as global head of security services and global head of alternative funds administration based in new york where he was responsible for delivery of services to 2000 investment funds with over 250 250 billion dollar of assets Paul then took over as chairman and CEO of Asia Alternative Asset Partners, a Hong Kong-based hedge fund investment management firm. Of course, the interesting part here is Paul joined CFA Institute in 2012 as managing director for Asia Pacific, overseeing the expansion to China and India. He later assumed the leadership of its institutional partnership division, which is responsible for engagement with key firms, groups, and associations in the global investment industry. He was appointed president and CEO of CFA Institute in Jan 2015, a position he held till 1st of September 2019, I should say, in which capacity I met him quite a few times. He is also a founding member of Sustain Finance, a not-for-profit geared towards helping asset owners and managers integrate sustainability into their decision-making process. Paul holds a master's degree in history from Oxford University. and the cfa charter holder is also a fellow of the chartered paul holds a masters degree in history from oxford university and is a cfa charter holder he is also a fellow of the institute of chartered accounts of england and wales and worked as an auditor at pricewaterhouse in london for four years early in his career which of course um, brings another common uh, uh, topic because i'm also an auditor and chartered accountant who worked with the big four So it's with huge pleasure that I welcome Paul Smith to this podcast. He's a person I like and respect tremendously. 
and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So welcome to this podcast, Paul. Thank you, Binod. It's great to be here. And uh, sorry about that lengthy introduction. That's one of the disadvantages of old age is that your CV <laughs> goes on forever and ever and ever. <laughs> no, no, Paul, you moved from being an auditor at PwC to fund management, to fund administration, yes. to advising funds to CFA Institute. I've probably missed a few moves in between. <laughs> now, you did warn me earlier in our conversation not to ask you about your career plan. So I'll desist from asking that. But I will ask you a related question because I suspect youngsters can learn something from your very interesting journey. So can you please take us through why you made the career decisions you did? Well, I, I'll try. Uh, I mean, the, the point of my warning to you was really to say, as I think you you would you would uh, agree with me in terms of your career, that a lot of the things that happen to one in life are um, about fortune, hopefully good fortune rather than bad fortune, but it's about um, taking opportunity rather than necessarily being planned at all areas or at all times during your career. But I think I think the first thing you you, you need definitely to put a plan for is when you come down from university. Uh, and I think that's really the part of your career where you perhaps need to put most thought into having a plan. And in my case, uh, I did history uh, uh, at university. So um, uh, you either become a teacher um, or you uh, an academic or you decide that you're going to have to get some form of formal training. So for me, the obvious thing to do was uh, to go into PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, to get a, an accountancy uh, uh, qualification, which which would give me four more years, really, three or four more years to sort of look about me, uh, learn a little bit about business and to decide on my sense of direction, really. And so definitely plan for that first step from university. And the tips there, I think, are go somewhere um, that is going to look good on your CV, um, you know, some, somewhere that people have heard about, uh, and go to a business that's going to put some training into you. Um, so a big four accountancy firm, obviously, they have huge training budgets and they uh, it's in their interests to put something into you. Uh, and then finally, you join with a cohort of young people um, who stay with you throughout your life. Uh, and I think that's important as well, is that you have a peer group uh, that you can calibrate your own progress upon. Mm -hmm. That was the only part of my career that I planned. <laughs> the rest, the rest, really, I think there are some tips, um, but I didn't put a lot of planning into it. It was really about responding to opportunity. So uh, I fell into fund management, really, because um, uh, I wanted to go and work abroad. And the only job that I could find in Paris at the time, uh, which is where I wanted to, to be, uh, was in asset management. So I became a fund manager by default, really. And, and you know, for, for, those, for those young people who are watching this podcast who are astonished about that because they may be having a lot of struggle in their own first steps into the career. I mean, this was 1984. So, you know, we are, we are going back into prehistory almost here. So this is, this is a long, long time ago. Uh, and the world was different then and financial services were different. It wasn't the mainstream business that it is today. It was a backwater 
Um, it was it was what I used to call in the day a second son business. You know, you put your first son into a proper career, and your second son, the slightly the slightly less advantaged one, you put into fund management, really, and that's kind of where uh, where I ended up by 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 default. Um, and so that was really the main career step, if you like, and it was it was it was all about seizing an opportunity, wanting to make a change, wanting to learn new things, and I think that's those are the important things and when I look at my career changes they were all motivated by that really whether it was you know leaving the profession and joining the CFA Institute or retiring even from the CFA Institute when I didn't have to but I chose to because I wanted to keep learning things um, didn't want to go stale wanted to keep pushing myself um, wanting to try new things to take new opportunities and I think those are the important things in life when you when you feel that you're getting stale in a role, the next thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to be fired. So when you feel you're getting stale, make a change, whether within the firm or, uh, or, 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 or changing it up in some other fashion, make that change. And if you have exciting opportunities presented to you, like I was asked to come to Hong Kong to run part of a bank, um, if you have exciting opportunities presented to you, Never let your own inhibitions, your own fears stand in your way. Grab them with both hands. You'll never regret it. Even if that opportunity doesn't work out for you, you'll never regret uh, pushing yourself to take new experiences and new opportunities. So, so that's that's the best I can do there, Vinod, I think. <laughs> oh, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, just as an example, the whole idea of responding to opportunity is just tremendously insightful and powerful, isn't it? I mean, uh, you got to keep looking around for the right opportunity and then just grab it when it comes along uh, instead of having a maybe a rigid career plan. Um, I also like the statement about the fact that once you get bored, that's probably career suicide yes. and one must move on. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the hardest, hardest thing for any human to do because we all, we all like our routine, no matter how mm. clever we might think we are or how talented we are or we, we, we might think we are. We're all frightened of change to some degree. Um, we all like doing tomorrow what we did today. And I think um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a positive act, which is often the hardest thing to do, mm. to shake yourself out of your, your routine basically. Absolutely. I mean, I, I get, and I'm sure you also do get lots of queries from youngsters, Paul, I mean, CFA candidates, um, CFA charter holders, who keep talking about and thinking about a longer, like a 10-year career plan. And yep. they have this, they want to have it mapped out all the way from analyst associate to VP to CIO in asset management, which sounds very elegant and very focused. But I suspect there's something wrong with that approach, but I want you to tell me what's wrong with that way of looking at things and how should how exactly should they look at their careers? It's it's uh, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with it. It's always good to have a plan. I think what is what's the mistake is to sort of stick rigidly to it. I mean, it's the I can't I can never remember the great Mike Tyson quote about you know it's all very well having a plan, but when someone <laughs> punches you in the face, your your uh, your plan goes out the window. Sort of thing. So, so I think that's the important thing to remember that no matter how well you plan, um, life will throw something at you that 
requires you to respond. And so it's good to have a plan, but always be flexible. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing to say to everybody listening is that life is an incredibly long race. Um, you know, our, 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 obviously our forebears um, died 20 years earlier than we are likely to die uh, and worked 20 years less long as a mm -hmm. result. I mean, the days where our societies can afford to put us on a pension at 65 are long gone. We're all likely to uh, work until we're 70, 75 years of age. So the, the key thing is there's no rush. You're likely to have at least three or four career changes of some degree, maybe not dramatic career changes, but some repointing during mm. your career. So I think in the early years, that first 10, you should really look at them. And I know that's an awfully long time when you're only 20 years of age, because it's a third of your life, basically. But that first 10 is all about laying down foundations that are going to give you the platform to go down multiple different directions as your life unwinds. And so that I think is the key is don't try not to shut too many doors behind you too early on in the process. Hmm. Keep yourself, keep your career as general and as broad as you possibly can. Learn as many things as you possibly can, because you can't possibly know in your early 20s um, what's going to really appeal to you. And also, the world is, mo is moving and changing so fast. So you might specialize in something that looks good for two or three years, but prove to be a blind alley five or six years down the line. So... Try to keep your skill set broad, try and network, have a great peer group, try and understand the industry you're in, try and um, have as many connections within it as you possibly can, and plan for a 50-year career rather than a 10-year-old career. Hopefully, life works out well and you're lying on the beach or whatever else it is that you, you, you particularly want to do by the time you're 35. But take it from a, an old guy like me, I'm 62 and I'm still working. <laughs> that's, that's, going to be, that's going to be most people's life. <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned three to four major changes during the career. I can definitely relate yeah. to that, Paul, because I went from being an industrial banker to auditing the big four to then real estate development and then quit right. corporate life to set up my CFA prep company in Dubai. And, and grew and was acquired by Kaplan. And, and now another stage of my life is podcast, et cetera. I mean, and, and, and if I look back, I could never have imagined that I would have no. taken this path. Uh, if no, yet they're, all, they're all in some way linked to each other. One follows on from another. And I think that's a fascinating, your career journey is much more interesting than mine. I, mean, I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the uh, interest in what you've said is that each one follows on from the other mm, and you can mm. see why you ended up where you did. Uh, and there's a logic to that, but it's not something you could ever have predicted 25 years ago. Yeah. I think like Steve Jobs said, it all makes sense and the dots, dots all connect when you look backwards. But yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, forwards. that's a great, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk about the industry of asset management, which, of course, is your forte, Paul. I mean, there's yeah. been a huge rise in passively managed assets globally, such as you know, index funds and exchange-traded funds, uh, you know, Cathie Woods, ARC, for example. And then you have this jump in automation and trading and research, and you have yeah. new investable assets like NFTs and cryptocurrencies. And, you know, so 
we're also probably seeing a trend towards maybe towards disintermediation with retail investors, with the Reddit crowd, and you know, especially millennials in developed markets, seeing investment as entertainment, um, yep. as evidenced by Robin Hood traders, for example. So it's all very um, fast and bit bewildering. So in this context, how relevant will be the fundamental research-oriented or focused CFA qualification and by, by default CFA charter holders uh, in future? Right. Well, I think that's a great question, Binod. Obviously, it's, mm-hmm. it's if, if you're in my old seat at CFA Institute, it's the, it's the one question that keeps you awake at night. How do you keep a qualification in a fast-moving world and a fast-moving industry relevant? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to say in answer to your question is, is obviously education is always good. Trying to understand the way markets work is always a valuable piece of your uh, uh, your education if you're intending to get into this industry. But the tools and techniques are going to change as you go through life. And, and clearly what we're faced with, uh, or we have been faced with over the last 10 years, is a change in the way that companies are valued. And uh, you look at tech companies, uh, they're valued much more now upon client acquisition than they are on profitability. Now, for old school uh, security analysts, that's a problem because they're looking at uh, the balance sheet, they're looking at the cash flow, they're mm-hmm. looking at the, uh, the profit and loss, um, and they're not looking at uh, uh, some of the intangibles that increasingly make up more and more of a company's net worth. And so what's happening, I think, is the techniques behind valuing a company are changing but not the basic principles of what you're trying to do, which is to construct a vision of what this company is going to look like and what, in the end, it's going to pay its shareholders back, into mm. whether that's a dividend stream or whether that's through a market exit or whatever. So, so the end goal doesn't change, um, but the tools do. And um, CFA's role uh, which obviously I know they're working very hard on, is to make sure that the curriculum uh, changes with the times. But it's not always obvious. <laughs> it's easier It's easier said than done. You're also talking about a super tanker rather than a small boat and changing direction. <laughs> changing direction is never easy. Um, I, think, I think the other thing I'd love to say on, on what you're saying about Reddit and Robin Hood and, and that is that, that I, I remember sitting next to um, uh, the gentleman who ran um, Vanguard, uh, whose name temporarily escapes me at the time, Bill McNabb, uh, at, a, at an industry fun- function. And he said, um, and he was absolutely right because I went back and checked it, that the rise in the number of CFAs in the world, the rise in the number of charter holders, was directly correlated to the decline in alpha in the markets. And um, he was 100% right, because the more professional people, well-trained professional people, looking at stock markets, the less alpha there is to find, by definition, because it's being mined and tapped all the time. And what happened um, until about five years ago was this professionalization of the marketplace where most of the participants in the market were people like you and I who had qualifications, who in theory knew what we were doing Mm. uh, and could um, analyze stocks and and market movements successfully. The great news for professionals 
is that with Reddit, with Robinhood, uh, the retail participation in the market is rising and also the retail ownership in the market is rising. And that means that professionals are going to be able to add alpha in the future. So I think that's really interesting. That's something that we all need to get. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's obviously it's a, it's, it's an ethical question as much as anything else. And it's a difficult question, but mm. you know, markets are about taking a price from somebody else, which you believe to be incorrect. And um, that's all about information. It's all about asymmetry of information. It's all about professional judgment. And the more amateurs there are out there, the more likely you are as a professional to succeed. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that it's always worth remembering. <laughs> I, I never thought of it that way. Thank, thanks for that uh, reassuring statement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and more power to Reddit and Robinhood traders. I should absolutely, say. absolutely. Bring and them on. Bring them on. <laughs> but I, I must admit that sometimes you look at the stratospheric valuations of this um, mid and small cap tech stocks and you wonder what's happening. As an example, uh, and, and you probably can relate to it anyway. So I, I recently saw an analysis where the, the, the analyst actually made a comment saying, this stock is cheap at 25 times price to sales. <laughs> <laughs> That's Not... page 26 of the <laughs> curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. So, now... no, it, but, it, but I mean, sometimes also as a, a, an older person, one has to sit back and um, reflect a little bit. Now, I'll tell you a story. About, I have a very good friend in Hong Kong who's, who um, gave, uh, he has three children. He gave each of them about now, I should think 15 years ago, 10,000 Hong Kong dollars to invest in a stock, one stock, right. one stock thing. And um, uh, his youngest daughter put everything into uh, Apple. And obviously 15 years ago saw this stock uh, go uh, through the roof. Um, good for her. And um, every every sort of year, Simon would look at her portfolio and say, right, you know, this has now got to a significant amount of money. You have to diversify. And she said, no, I like Apple. I use its products. My friends use its products. And she was, when, when he gave her this 10,000, she would have been no more than six years of age. Wow. And uh, um, so she hung on. Every year, Simon tried to, my friend tried to persuade her to sell. She refused to do so. She still owns that 100% uh, of her stock portfolio is Apple. And she's now uh, obviously a very rich young lady in terms, of, uh, in terms of that. And I think as an older person, we have to sort of, you know, listen to stories like that and say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we missed it, really. We yes. missed what was going on there. She didn't, you know, she didn't at no. any point during the last 15 years, she knew which way the wind was blowing and, and what was happening in the world in her, in her gut much more than we did. And I think, I think as an older person, you kind of gotta, you kind of gotta absorb lessons like that and remember mm -hmm. that, that, that sometimes you're just, you, you, which is what's so exciting about life. You've got to stay young. You've got to keep surrounding yourself with young people as you do with your podcast and things like that, because actually, they have a lot of insight. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going to the CFA community and CFA candidates, Paul, something that you're very familiar with. I mean, 
we are seeing large numbers of CFA candidates pass all three levels in India and China and certain other jurisdictions as well. But yeah. the capital markets in these countries, as you know, aren't big enough. I mean, the entire Indian stock market is cap yeah. is just about $3.4 trillion, which is probably the combined market capitalization of Apple and Amazon combined. <laughs> I mean, so one result of all this is that there are probably too many CFA level three passouts and even CFA charter holders. And as a result, a lot of them are working in middle and back office jobs like risk compliance, operations, financial planning, even accounting. So I've got two questions here, Paul. Uh, one is, should supply be limited? Should CFA Institute consider steps like tightening the entry criteria into the program, into level one, essentially, or making the exams tougher or be more stringent in awarding the charter in terms of you know, the quality of the experience? Um, and the second question was, if this trend of oversupply, for lack of a better word, continues, will it adversely affect the reputation of the CFA Charter, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, of which India and China are part of? Yeah, I, 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 just a, a, a fabulous question. And it, it was something that kept me um, uh, uh, awake at night because being based out of Asia and being a very frequent visitor to both China and India, um, it was the, the 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 single biggest ethical question, if you like, that that um, that we faced. And I suppose I try and divide it into two things. Um, the first question: I come, you know, as I said earlier, I come from a liberal arts background. I, I I know that's very unfashionable at the moment, but I'm a historian by by inclination and a finance practitioner by necessity. I suppose <laughs> it's, it's kind of the the way that I would look at it. And so. So my, my view of life is that all education is worth acquiring and you should never stop anybody's ability uh, or access to education. Mm. So if a young Indian or a young Chinese person needs to or wants to acquire a financial education, there is nothing better out there than the charter today. And they should go and get that education and they will be the better for it and it will help them in their life in many, many different ways, whether uh, it's on a personal level, family level, or a professional level. So I don't, think, I don't think restricting access to the education is right. What is a challenge, I think, and I think one that the CFA way before my time got wrong, was the, um, the award of the charter. Mm. And I think there we relaxed the rules on experience um, uh, to too great an extent. And so I wouldn't say we actually have, you know, when you look at the global population of financial professionals, there's no question um, there aren't enough charter holders. It's not that there are too many. Mm. But charter holders tend to be perhaps, you know, there, there may be too many right this moment in India. There may be, I don't think they're anywhere near enough in China, having said that. There aren't enough in America and there aren't enough in Western Europe uh, either. Um, in fact, when you look at all the people out there who are giving financial advice, who have no qualifications whatsoever. But there are, there are pockets yeah. where the charter uh, is... It, uh, is too common for the size of the financial markets today. And I think India is perhaps the, the biggest example of that um, because the financial markets haven't grown enough. And, and uh, we spend a lot of time worrying about that, a lot of time talking to 
uh, the industry in India, trying to get them to absorb more charter holders. But at the end of the day, it's a it's a government regulation issue. It's a it's a growing the markets issue. Mm. So if I had my time again, I would have tightened the criteria for getting the charter more. Uh, I would have insisted more on direct investment management experience as being something that you at least had to have you know, mm. 12 months of rather than this rather nebulous concept of support of the decision-making process, which I think qualifies too many people and then leads to the second part of, you, of your question to this dissatisfaction that people get the charter, they get the letters after their name, and then can't get the jobs that they feel quite rightly, given the effort that they put in, that mm. their efforts deserve. And um, that is, A, a moral responsibility, um, although we never promise to find anybody a job, but it's a moral responsibility. Um, but secondly, a reputational issue, as you say, because uh, news spreads fast, particularly in a country like India, where everyone is super connected uh, in terms of um, uh, WhatsApp groups or uh, other forms of social media. Um, and, uh, you know, I do, I do think it's a challenge where, where young Indians will say, you know, why are you bothering to get this qualification? It's not going to do you any good. Um, and I also think it leads... It, it, there's a human aspect to it as well that if you're if you're doing a support function job in say a business process outsourcing or knowledge process outsourcing business in Hyderabad or Bangalore, um, you're a little bit dissatisfied if you've got the charter, and I think that's very unfortunate because you've got a great job, you're doing well, you're working possibly for a great company, and there are lots of opportunities there. And um, but you're you know within you you feel that you're worth more, and I think that's a shame because you know you you always want young people to be satisfied with where they are and what they're accomplishing rather than be um, you know a little bit um, uh, a little bit uh, upset with what they're accomplishing what they're achieving. That's something people of your my age can have, mm. but you know you don't want you don't want somebody who's twenty five thinking that. Yeah. Right, Paul. So. I mean, you've met thousands of young, ambitious CFA candidates around the world. I mean, uh, thanks to your globe trotting and God knows how many frequent flyer miles you've racked up <laughs> over the past many years. I mean, you remarked to me earlier in, in one of those calls that we had that one big gap that puzzled you in your interactions with them when they came up to you to introduce themselves. Uh, you, you mentioned that. What is that hmm. gap? Can you talk about that in more detail? And more importantly, how do you think these young chaps and young women can get better at closing that gap? Yeah, I mean, I always, I was always astonished. I mean, the, the point you made, I was always astonished when I go to uh, um, a social event in India. Uh, I mean, they're, they're wonderful things. Everyone's there. They're always full. Obviously, they always start an hour late, as you know, but that's okay once you're used to it. <laughs> that uh, um, uh, um, the time is only an indicator. It's not. <laughs> it's not there. Uh, time is very relative in India. <laughs> very relative, and that's that's what makes India such a special country. But young people would rush up to you and hand you their business card, and then run away again. And you would think to yourself, well, what was that? <laughs> and, uh, what was that interaction? When I go to the US, 
a young person will come up and they will talk to you and they will spend time with you and they will explain who they are, what they're trying to accomplish and what they need from you. I don't know why, but young Americans, men or women, are intuitively brilliant networkers. Young Indians have that social skill to learn. And um, it is all about wanting to make a, a, a personal connection with somebody, wanting to build your network. And that's a two-way process. And I think perhaps that's the piece that some young Indians forget is that it's not just about going up to somebody and, and, and giving them your card. What you've got to do is to ask them questions about themselves, tell them information about yourself, and try and have an exchange of information that is going to benefit both parties. Now, you may think as a 21-year-old, meeting someone like me, for instance, that I have nothing to gain from that interaction. But it's not true, as we discussed earlier on in this podcast. I have a lot to learn from you. You have to tell me about your story. You have to you have to have in your own mind what it is that you want to accomplish. Don't just say, Paul, I want a job. I mean, that's that's that you know, I know that. <laughs> you don't need to tell me. <laughs> I know that's why you're talking to me. You're not talking to me because I'm good looking or uh, anything else. You're talking to me because you think I can help you. I understand that. You don't need to explain that. What you need to tell me is how can I help you? So I need to know about you. I need to know what your strengths are, what your enthusiasms are, what part of the financial services industry you're interested in and how you want to get there. And then my mind can start working upon how I can help you. And so it's, 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 it's so important to remember that those soft skills are absolutely vital. And the best way of doing that, I, I had a great mentor in life, um, uh, uh, the first man I went to work for, had that skill that people like Bill Clinton allegedly have and other great politicians, that when they're talking to you, you're the only person in the room. Mm. And that's what you need to do when you're networking is make the other person feel that they are the most important person in the room. And the way you do that is by asking them about themselves. You know, it's, it's a bit like going on your first date is, you know, don't talk about yourself. You know, that's just boring. <laughs> Ask him or her about themselves and, and try and extract from them some information, get them talking about, about their favorite subject, which is themselves. Create that connection, then tell them what you want to accomplish and let them um, help you that way. And remember, it's a, it's a two-way exchange. They will get as much out of you as you will get out of them if you're a good conversationalist. Mm. And that, I'm afraid, is, 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 is you know, is, is, a, is, I think, a real problem in India. Kids just aren't used to doing that. Maybe something, Binod, you would know more than I, maybe something about a sort of more hierarchical culture that addressing your elders and having that sort of connection is really mm. difficult. But that's, that's what's got to be overcome. Right. I mean, absolutely nailed it, right, Paul? Everyone likes to be asked about themselves and, and they will open up then. But 
it, it's yeah. simple and it's intuitive and logical, but so difficult to implement for many people yeah. who, who just can't. I mean, they are perfectly fine navigating through a grueling exam uh, yeah. over the years, but to strike up a conversation with a stranger is something yeah. beyond their capabilities. Well, and that, and that was, uh, I mean, linking into a couple of the other questions you've asked uh, about the charter, I think that's the other thing that I regret is that we have attracted too many technically minded people into mm. the profession, people for whom sitting an exam is second nature and they can do that all days long, but who actually can't um, and don't want to hold a conversation with somebody and get to know somebody. Because the higher up an organization you go, the more those social skills are necessary. You've got to manage people. How do you manage people unless you're interested in them and like them? How do you sell something unless you're interested in people and like them? How do you, how do you design strategy for a company unless you have some form of understanding of the way that the world works? I mean, how many people have you and I met in our career who have a brilliant idea and think that the idea itself should sell itself, that they're so brilliant, and, th and they are, that they've thought of this great thing, and therefore everyone in the world should want to buy it. And they've missed, they've missed the most important factor is you can have as brilliant an idea as you like, but if no one wants it, if you can't bring it to market, if you can't sell it, you will lose a lot of money. And um, the world is littered with geniuses who have very poor business skills. Yeah. I mean, Paul, you're a chartered accountant and so am I. And, and, and during my articleship and my chartered accountancy career, and I'm sure you've seen that as well, um, soft skills was a, always a big gap um, yeah. in, in past hours. And I think that's true for almost every certification, whether it's CPA or CA or CFA, yeah. because you lack that collegial experience, the mentorship, the, the teamwork, uh, you're sitting, sitting in your room somewhere isolated and studying. Um, I wonder how the governing bodies like CF Institute or anybody would solve that. It, it's a problem that needs to be cracked, but it's quite a tough one to crack. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my last couple of years at the Institute, we were doing a lot of soft skills training mm -hmm. as part of the continuing professional education conversation. Um, but it is hard, as you say. I mean, how do you, you know, you're 22 years of age, your character's kind of formed. And how do you how do you teach someone who's twenty two uh, to be someone other than they are? Really, it's it's quite hard. So, but I mean, there is something you can do, and there are lots of tips and tricks you can you can give people to to do that. Mm -hmm. But I also think that one of the things that we ought to do as professions is to attract a much broader. And I know you want to ask me about diversity, a much broader spread of people in it was always I, I must have done 800 university visits when I was for, in my seven years at CFA uh, I must have done about 800 university visits and never once did I address a faculty outside of the finance or economics stream mm -hmm. I never went to see the musicologists I never went to see the historians or the philosophers or the English majors or the language or the linguistics people, never once. And so what we did was we attracted into the profession people who were very technically minded. And we have forgotten that at the end of the day, at the end of every financial transaction is a person. And if you can't empathize with that person, 
if you can't understand what it is that they need from you, how on earth are we going to be able to serve them properly and deliver the products to them that they actually want? And I think that in a nutshell is what's gone wrong with finance over the last 20 or 30 years, that it's become a very enclosed environment, bunch of really super smart people doing things that really amuse themselves and enrich themselves, but are not really geared towards the person in the street. We, we'll, we'll come to that point, which I, I, I know is close to your heart uh, in, in a few questions from now. And, and moving on from the soft skills gap to the diversity gap or the gender gap, Paul, I mean, I mean you have noted previously in, in your speeches that the industry, the asset management industry, the finance industry as a whole faces a diversity problem. Yes, the CFA Institute board is gender diverse, and that's just a tiny drop, a tiny step. You know, in, in terms of female CFA charter holders, uh, definitely in terms of female CFA candidates that I've seen in my classes, we have not really moved the needle. I mean, no. it's only about 1%, I think, of CFA charter holders globally are women. Um, I know it's about, it's about, no, no, it's much better than that. It's about 16, 17%. 16%, sorry, 16%, yes. Yeah. Uh, although research has shown that women make, often make better CFOs and equity analysts yep. than their male counterparts for a host of reasons, right? I mean, you have managed large diverse teams at work um, over the last many decades. So I have two questions here. One is, what do you think are the factors of nature and nurture that you've seen that are holding women back in their career in investing? Well, um, I, I, you know, firstly, I, I always like to, when we're on to gender diversity, I always like to start with the, the, the comment that um, having gender balance in an organization, first and foremost, is fair. And I think, you know, there, there are lots of arguments that I'll go on to as to why it's important. But first and foremost, it's fair. You know, men and women should have an equal crack at opportunity. And I think that's an important thing to say, firstly. Secondly, when you're, if, if you think about life in general, when you're dealing with complexity, you need um, different viewpoints to be able to resolve challenges that you face. And that's the big intellectual argument for diversity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you just think about that in a political sense. If you're trying to solve a political challenge, um, such as, you know, spreading out wealth in society, one of the big challenges, or healthcare or something like that, you need views from all sorts of different parts of society um, to be able to resolve those problems. And finance is no diff different. We have complicated problems that we're faced with and we need diverse teams, social background, gender, uh, um, uh, educational background to be able to resolve them properly. So that's the, that's the main argument for diversity. The final argument, which is just a basic practical one, is that 50% of the clients out there are women. By definition, and you know, if we wish to build a business, why are we ignoring fifty percent, or why are we underserving rather fifty percent of our client base, who may prefer, not in all cases uh, by any means, but who may prefer uh, to be dealt with by someone who's more empathetic towards their particular uh, uh, life experiences. So, so I think for those three reasons, gender diversity is really, really important. Mm. Nurture over nature. I have no doubt in my own mind that that is a question of nurture, not nature. Women are just as equipped as men are uh, to be financial analysts. 
they may approach the, 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 the problems differently. They may have different risk appetites, different propensities of managing people, different ways of looking at the world. They're, they're certainly not going to be the same CIO that a man is going to be, but it's not better or worse. It's just different. And they'll have different outcomes, uh, but just as valid outcomes as, as men will have. The challenge for women is 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 the ones that we all know about. That mm. um, uh, there's a lot of bias, both conscious and unconscious, um, in the way that the world works. Uh, men like to recruit other men; they're more comfortable than uh, than doing it any other way. Um, men tend to have a bias when it comes to promotion. Uh, they tend to have a, a bias when it comes to paying women. Um, uh, all of those things are, 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 are uh, against women at the hiring process, during their career, um, and after their career. And so those are the things that hold women back, mm. absolutely not their inherent abilities. And I speak as, I have five sisters, and I have three daughters. So I know about what I speak. <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is nothing that women um, can't do that men can intellectually. That I have absolute no doubt. And my sisters and my daughters would kill me if I said anything differently, and they would be right to. <laughs> I suspect you have been biased or dominated by your sisters and, and your daughters and your <laughs> do wife. I, do I look as do I look as if I'm easily dominated? <laughs> <laughs> the second question, Paul, related to this was. What are three practical steps you think companies can take to improve women's participation in investing? Well, I'm, I'm going to throw in a, a controversial one at the end. Uh, I think the first two are pretty obvious, um, which are uh, hiring practices and promotion and pay practices. I think uh, companies need to think much more carefully about uh, blind interviewing, um, about the way that they are setting up their hiring. You know, is it men only who are doing the hiring or are there some women doing the hiring? Uh, when it comes to pay and promotion, are you doing the uh, uh, analytical work behind that that you need to do? You know, mm -hmm. are you promoting more men than women in terms of your overall workforce? Are you paying men and women uh, the same bonus or the same incentive uh, for the same job? Um, what's your gender pay gap? There's all sorts of very simple metrics you can run around hiring practices and promotion and pay practices that will um, tell you whether there is inherent bias within your system. Hmm. So those are two very simple things that all businesses should do and should be honest about and should try and Correct. And obviously, alongside that goes a lot of training to help managers uh, recognize the way that they are acting. The third thing that we can all do is quotas. Um, now, you know, that's a very unfashionable, perhaps, thing to say. Um, but I've been at this a long time. And uh, I don't think training, um, more awareness, at the end of the day, moves the needle. Um, or it doesn't move the needle in our lifetimes. Mm, mm. The only thing that is going to change is where you force change. So, as you know, a lot of countries have now mandated uh, 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 women 
uh, percentages of women on boards um, and things of that nature. And I think every company should be thinking very carefully about quotas within it. Now, you mentioned the CFA having a gender diverse board. The reason we got there was the uh, president of the CFA, a guy called Bob Jenkins, uh, half a dozen years ago, Bob uh, put a quota in, a three-year quota to say, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, year one, we were going to have 20% women on the board. Year two, we were going to have 30% women on the board. Year three, we were going to be 50-50. And um, we voted on it, we agreed it, and we did it. And that's the only way it would have happened if we set ourselves the metric to do it. And now you've got a flywheel effect where you know it, it, it's, it's obvious that that's what you need to maintain. And the board is a lot better for it as well, right. I, right. I hasten to add. There's, there's less sort of macho posturing and nonsense, um, uh, you know, antler locking uh, amongst the board. There's much more constructive conversation. Uh, it's a much more diverse and rich debate in, in all senses. I think quotas are important. I think quotas uh, at every stage, not just hiring quotas, you've got to make sure that as you go through an organization, all grades, in the, and obviously that takes many, many years, all mm. grades in the organization are properly represented. Yes. Most companies have kind of got 50-50 at the start, but you'll see that women are trite. Women leave organizations much more uh, than men do. And obviously that's partly maternity and all of those mm. issues. So you've got to think about how do you keep women in your, in your company how do you incentivize them? Um, how do you bring them back, perhaps, after they've had a child? Um, how do you keep them motivated? How do you keep them believing that they're getting a fair shake within your organization? And I think, I think quotas are one way of doing it. Very controversial, but as I say, I'm long in the tooth. I've seen this in practice. It does work. It's not the right way. But I think to start things off, to kick things off, you've got to have quotas. And then hopefully down the line, one can relax that. Yes, I mean, affirmative action is always controversial, isn't it? And, and yeah. but like someone said, desperate situations require desperate remedies. So yeah. Maybe that does work. Well, and I, I think in the emerging world, where obviously uh, the developing world, where obviously there are so many other barriers to women, educational barriers, um, uh, uh, societal barriers, uh, often anyway, um, it's even more important mm. that uh, there is affirmative action. It's very hard to change society's thinking without that. And, and we, do it in other, we do it in other areas. I mean, my favorite example is smoking. You know, we, 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 we knew it was bad for us, for decades, but but we still all, when we had a drink in our hands, we still all had a cigarette in the other hand. And uh, it was only when the government said, no, you can't go into a bar or whatever and smoke, um, that we, we changed our habits, but we changed them overnight. And that's affirmative action. Uh, pollution is another one. Um, you know, there's lots mm. of affirmative action. So why do we worry about it in gender? You know, I think I think we have to ask ourselves that question. Well, the role of finance in society as a whole, and of course, this recent um, conversation on, on gender diversity and, and women's participation, neatly segues into a, a critical topic of sustainable finance, right? A theme close to your heart. Um, yes, very much so. You and two other co-founders set up Sustained Finance recently as a 
thought leadership platform on sustainability in finance. Now, of course, I'm going to throw a couple of curveballs here, Paul. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it'd been but, too easy so far. <laughs> for the longest time, some of the most profitable sectors and companies to invest in uh, have been in alcohol and tobacco and fossil fuels and weapons and and this will probably continue for decades, you know. So yep. wouldn't following sustainable finance in the sense of limiting your universe of investable sectors not just reduce your return, um, but also increase your risk due to lack of diversification? And fundamentally, and this is the nub of the question, isn't it? Are profits and purpose compatible? Yeah, well, I, 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 it's, that's a great series of so much to, to talk about there. Firstly, the, 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 the shameless plug, you know, www.sustainfinance.org. Okay, www.sustainfinance.org. That's the, the website of our uh, initiative, which is all about trying to connect finance to a sense of purpose, um, to remember that as finance professionals, our job is not just to enrich ourselves, that's a byproduct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the actual job is to try to make society wealthier, not, uh, and uh, we get wealthy as a result of that. And I think far too many of our colleagues over the years have forgotten that, that, basic, that basic truth. Um, I, I think what you say in the short run is absolutely right. As sectors fall out of fashion, whether it's tobacco or arms or anything else, uh, obviously uh, under economic theory, the returns on those sectors have to rise because they still need capital. Um, they still need to attract investors. So you would have done very well, as you pointed out, by investing in tobacco uh, over the last few years, for instance. Mm. Um, so there are two other things I think that need to be said alongside that. The first is obviously this rather more, this rather nebulous view is is do you think that your that you as a business should be investing solely for return or is there a broader set of objectives not just um, financial return objectives but societal objectives that can be measured in other ways and obviously we're struggling with that as a concept how do you value those those uh, societal goods and and by definition how do you value the negative externalities of things like tobacco and so for me that leads to the second part of this question really which is government um, I think too often the way that the sustain the sustainability debate is argued is to place all of the responsibility for resolving it on asset owners and asset managers. Asset owners and asset managers are conflicted. Obviously, we have to deliver the best return for our clients in the way that society measures that return. So government has to help us change the way that society measures return. And it can do that not just in um, uh, a sort of a conversational way. It can do that through regulation and through taxation. And that, I believe, is what we're seeing in the world at the moment, whether it's a carbon tax or investment credits for uh, investing in green projects, whatever it happens to be, what we've got now is a partner in government that is trying to nudge companies through incentives and punishments in mm -hmm. the right direction. And that helps the asset management company move in the right way. Finally, I think, 
Um, more and more, our investors are younger people by definition. They are, um, you know, uh, uh, even if you're 40 years of age, you've had 30 years now of being exposed to the ESG debate. Mm. I was actually listening to a, a program on the uh, radio yesterday in, in London, where I'm talking to you from, where Maggie Thatcher was talking about this in 1989, a really prescient speech she gave to the UN in 1989, talking about the collapse in the environment. 1989, Margaret Thatcher as well. You wouldn't Ma think Margaret that. Thatcher of all people. Margaret Thatcher of all people. Exactly right. And how shocked her political party, which obviously is the right-wing party in the UK, was to hear Margaret Thatcher talk about it. But remember, Margaret Thatcher was a trained chemist. She was a scientist. And so she understood environmental degradation. And in 1989, she stood in front of the UN and she spoke about it. So if you're 40 years of age, you've lived with this. You're now the ideal client. And what you want from your asset manager is a sense of purpose. And so that more and more is the push from the client side that is coming as well, that will also help capital be properly deployed, where we are seeing more and more client pressure for asset managers to really walk the talk, mm. to express what they mean by their purpose, and to ask asset management companies to have a statement of purpose, and then to drive that purpose through everything that they do as an organization. It's difficult because there is a conflict uh, at this stage in the short run between investment return possibly and trying to make sure that you run uh, uh, an ESG uh, business. Um, but that I think will be resolved over time as uh, government regulation and investment opportunity catch up with the way that society is thinking. So I think we do have a short run mismatch um, and that's, I think, the other thing that climate change and some of the other things, social change, these are really long, long, long run uh, issues, whereas most people look at their portfolio on a day by day basis. Yes. <laughs> so so there's a there's an obvious mismatch in terms of 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 expectation there, which is a, which is a real problem. So, so let's assume that I've been convinced or, or rather compelled <laughs> by my guilt to to put money into a sustainable fund or sustainable listed company now yeah. the problem i see here paul is we still don't have one generally accepted set of anything whether it is no. criteria or definitions or accredited courses or reporting standards or data providers or auditing standards or you know or, or a standard set like say the international financial reporting no. um, standards and isb this is of course natural given the nascent state of the field but it can, among others, create confusion in investors' minds, um, make it harder for investors to compare and yep. contrast and make it easier for companies to play regulatory arbitrage and, and make cross-border listings difficult. So I've got two questions here, and I'm sure you have thought about this. One is, what are three criteria at the top of mind that a sustainability-oriented investor should use to select a fund or a company? Well, I think I think that's a that's a great question, and I, and I think it's one that all investors should be thinking deeply about. The first I, I touched upon earlier is mm -hmm. is um, is the investment manager you're appointing uh, aligned throughout its organisation with your principles? So how do you how do you assure yourself of that? Well, the first thing that you do is you look at their mission, vision, and above all, their purpose statement as an organisation. 
Have they got one? Have they been able to articulate what it is that they're trying to do with your investments? So more and more you see that, that, that uh, forward-thinking asset management companies are coming up with purpose statements that explain how their stewardship of their client assets are going to be run and how they are going to comply, whether it's the UNPRI or whether it's some other form of, of, of uh, uh, ESG criteria that they may have. So that's very important. Do they have a purpose statement? And then secondly, have they aligned their organization with it? Um, have they dedicated the right resources? Do they have the HR policies? How are they voting their proxies, for instance, at shareholder meetings, companies that they own? Um, are they consistent in what they're doing? Which leads on to the, the final point. Um, have they dedicated the right resources to this conversation? And when you look at um, when you look at the people, for instance, who are behind the proxy voting world, how many people do they really have in that? If you're a major group and you only have two or three people in the proxy voting services team, then you know that they're not really aligning the organization with their stated sense of purpose. So I think, I think those three tips are the way to look about it. Do they have a purpose? Have they dedicated the resource? Are they walking the talk? Really, those are those are the three things that you should look for as an investor. And my second question here would be: What do you see happening over the next, say, decade or so regarding industry standards and regulation? Well, I I, I think the first thing to say is that there's a huge amount of work all over the world in terms of of this this central challenge that you say that you've articulated that uh, uh, that there aren't really any coherent standards. And that it's very difficult, actually, to put those standards together. Mm. Um, but there, there is a lot of work, whether it's uh, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, uh, whether it's uh, the IRRC, the International Integrated Reporting Council, whether it's the EU, uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, are doing something in their own world. Um, you know, all of these various regulatory bodies at different levels are trying to um, standardize the playing field, if you like, uh, level the playing field. Um, have they succeeded? Very definitely not. Will they succeed? Uh, I suspect not at the end of the day. I think the problem is, is too slippery, but the attempt is important. And, uh, and I think that's the most important thing. And I think, I think the thing that we all need to say is that, um, you know, we shouldn't let perfection be the enemy of the good, really. Mm -hmm. But in this, you know, too many asset managers, I think, use the, uh, the, 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 the challenge of non-standard ESG reporting as an excuse for not doing anything. And that's just lazy, really, more than anything else. And it's also counterintuitive as an asset manager, because what an asset manager is trying to do is to look for areas where reporting is incomplete. Um, you know, if, if, if reporting was perfect, you wouldn't need highly trained people like us. Um, our job, our job is to look at incomplete reporting and to say, and to fill in the gaps and to make intuitive uh, and well-researched judgments on whether that company is or isn't doing what they say they're doing and whether it's actually working or not. So we shouldn't allow, we shouldn't allow paucity of information or incomplete information to hold ourselves back. 
we should work with what we've got. We should accept that this is going to evolve over the next 10 years and improve, but it will be a, a push and a pull that part of it will be government, part of it will be uh, improved regulatory standards, but there'll always be a gap. And that's the gap that we need to step into and, and make our own, really. And so, so that's what I expect to happen. I think there are lots and lots of challenges. Um, as we've just said, um, it's really, really difficult to look at ESG, particularly on the environment side, because everybody sees something different. Um, you know, everybody's interpretation of an environmental good is is different, depending on whether you're a sort of a, a hard form environmentalist or a or a uh, someone who just wants to see progress. Uh, it's uh, you know, those two views are very, very different in terms of the way that you look at things, whether you believe that you can do damage and then restore. Mm. That's a viable way forward or whether you should do no damage at the start. So there's lots of different um, challenges here, but I think it's the engagement that's important. It's the conversation that's important, and it's moving society towards consensus that's key. That's the point of our think tank. It's not about saying you should do this or you shouldn't do that. It's about convening a forum where people can write uh, and hold events and exchange ideas and hopefully move us in the direction that we want to go. But that's a long-term thing. The thing that I, I am most, I, I'm, I'm a committed optimist. Uh, when, I, when I look at the ESG world, the technology exists. The problem is deploying it and distributing it. The technology, whether it's battery technology, whether it's uh, 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 sucking carbon out of the air, whatever it is that you, 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 know, you, you particularly worry about, the technology is there. It's not necessarily to scale yet. It's too expensive. So it's got to be deployed properly and it's got to be distributed into the areas of the world that need it, which often are the poorer parts of the world. So there are, there are challenges there. But the technology does exist. I believe strongly that we will sort it out. But it's a combination of society push, regulatory push, and asset owners and asset managers having the sense of commitment and purpose to what they're doing to move the industry in the right directions. Now, Paul, there's something called greenwashing, right? Which is where an organization presents itself as more environmentally friendly than it actually is. And, and greenwashing ranks among the most widely practiced and egregious abuses in ESG investing. Can you give three other examples of, for lack of a better word, abuses of ESG, so the investors are aware of the red flags in this nascent industry? Yeah. Um, for sure. I, I, I'm not sure I'd call them abuses. I mean, I think, as, as uh, I said earlier uh, in, in the cast, that, that this is an evolving world. Um, and uh, necessarily, as a result of that, there are interpretations that aren't necessarily common to everybody. So it's more, I'm trying to be obviously as diplomatic as possible. It's more trying to, to look for things that... Um, might might be confusions for you or might lead you to look at a company more favorably in an ESG context than perhaps mm -hmm. you should. So um, uh, I would look at things like, well, um, uh, when someone says they're going to be net zero, for instance, um, what does that actually mean? Look at what the, the um, 
the small print, if you like, is in that uh, in that uh, pledge. Um, do they mean that they are um, uh, investing uh, to uh, prevent any carbon emission, or are they investing to res to restore balance by um, uh, offsetting carbon emissions through some carbon positive uh, approach? And, and you need to decide as an investor which one of those two things you need to to uh, focus on. So I think net zero is is challenge. You need to poke into that when someone says, and that's obviously it's a very fashionable thing. Governments talking about net zero, the car industry talking about net zero. What do they really mean um, by that? Um, so I think that's important. I think supply chains. Uh, for me, uh, as an investment analyst, I think that's the most awkward, but perhaps the most interesting part of the uh, the ESG debate, whether it's on the environment, on the social side, or on the governance side, what are people doing to monitor and improve their supply chains, which obviously, by definition, usually are not companies that they control or activities that they control. These are third party, third party activities. So it's very, very difficult. But what are you doing to really ensure that um, uh, the components of your product manufacturer, whether those are whether those are human or whether those are um, uh, uh, material, what are you doing to make sure that those two are living up to the values that you espouse as a business, whatever those values happen mm -hmm. to be? Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a very rich area, and uh, because it's complicated, but because it has so many so uh, tentacles really that reach into everything and we've seen that with with you know some very hot topics like cotton production in Xinjiang for instance and uh, other types of activity that are going on where companies are, de or, uh, are deciding that um, they're not going to source products from various parts of the world for all sorts of different reasons some good some bad um, and some grey and some not grey. I mean, uh, you, you know, you think about child labour, for instance, and yeah. um, it's all very well to oppose child labour, but if all you're doing in a, a, a developing country is removing a source of income for a family, well, uh, how do you expect them to replace that income unless you're doing something on the other side to either promote children's education through paying parents a, a stipend for sending their children to school. But, you know, you have to replace that income in some fashion or other. You can't just take it away. So there's, 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 it's a very difficult, nuanced debate as far as, um, as far as supply chains are concerned. And I think that's where we're going to make most progress over the next few years because it just reaches into every country and every corner of society. Final thing on a more prosaic level, um, green bonds. Uh, I think those are uh, an increasing area of financing for a lot of companies and a lot of countries around the world. Um, uh, but I think they're all fraught with difficulties. Uh, are those green bonds being used to invest in specific companies, uh, specific uh, projects, or are they more generally used by the company? If so, how much of the proceeds of a bond issuance are really going to where you think that they're going. And I think that's going to be a, a, a debate as well. So those are the three areas I'd look at. Net zero, supply chains, green financing, green bond financing, as areas where any investor 
needs to sort of sit up and pay more attention to uh, corporate pronouncements and, and governmental pronouncements. Let's now talk about something, a platform that both you and I have been involved in actively and, and uh, uh, yourself, especially for at a much more senior level for a much more longer period, which is CFA Institute. And uh, I talk specifically about your role as president and CEO of CFA Institute from 2015 to 2019. And where I saw you in action, I, I thought your leadership at CFA Institute was exceptional for the pace and the impact. Not the least because you are, I think, at 10 different places at the same time. I, I, and I have no idea how you managed that feat of, uh, of being at several places. But, but it was refreshing to see a slow-moving bureaucratic monolith, you know, like CFA Institute, take the initiative for a change. Um, it's also an impressive feat because trying to change something like CFA Institute is like trying to turn a super tanker as opposed to a dinghy. And as, as you, as, as you uh, mentioned earlier, and significant change is quite difficult for most people because they are used to the status quo. They're used to a certain way of working. People often worry about loss of power and prestige and privileges. And, and usually when you try to make effect changes um, in a deep-rooted mindset, people usually resist. So I have two questions here. Um, one was, what were your tip? three top challenges trying to bring change to such a conservative organization? <laughs> I, ha I hate that question. <laughs> you, have to, you have to sort of think of three things that you did when obviously you, you do hundreds of different things. But thank you, thank you very much for your very kind words, which I'm not sure are deserved. Uh, I, I think really when one thinks back to the Institute, the first thing I would say is that I was dealt really good cards um, mm. in that uh, we had superly talented, motivated staff and super talented, motivated people like yourself, volunteers. Um, so uh, our workforce weren't just the people who worked for us. We had thousands of volunteers around the world, such as yourself, who gave their labor free. So we had this amazing human uh, team if you like, of super talented, super motivated people. So I had that to work with. Uh, we had a wonderful global footprint, as you know, as you talked about, mm -hmm. and we had a uh, we had a market leading product. So uh, you know that wasn't a bad position, uh, a bad company to be CEO of. But what we were, as you say, was a slightly sclerotic, uh, super tanker, slow moving, a bit complacent, perhaps a bit stuck in its ways in a world that was moving quickly. So my job really was 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 not to um, throw everything away and start again. I'm not that type of a CEO. I wasn't that type of a CEO. My job was to fine tune something that was already working. And so, so um, what would I say were the three things that really were 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 uh, challenges and things that I tried to focus on? The the first was really sort of going back to basics, thinking about the vision of the organization. I didn't rewrite the vision. We had one. We just weren't doing it. And so that was the that was the first thing was to sort of to sort of look at ourselves and sort of accept that a lot of what we were doing was off vision. And a lot of what we were doing wasn't really as calibrated as it could have been to delivering on the vision, which obviously is 
bringing financial education to financial professionals effectively and helping them do their jobs better and to be more ethical whilst they were doing it. And so that was the first thing, except that the vision was great and to accept that we weren't complying with it and how could we tune our activities better towards achieving that vision. And then the second thing any CEO has to do is that once you've decided what it is that you want to do, you've got to go out there and tell people. And it's not just internal people, it's your stakeholders. So it's your clients, it's your uh, service providers, it's your suppliers, it's your volunteers. You've got to communicate it and you've got to get them. The hardest part is you've got to get them to buy in to what you're saying. So that really, I think, was the, the part where, as you said, the shoe leather came in, if you like. <laughs> it's, you, can't, you can't convince people of what you're trying to do if you don't go and see them. It's a very old-fashioned concept, but if I'm going to try and tell you that we're going to change course slightly and I need your help in that, which is the key message, I need you to help me change course. How can I do that over a Zoom call, really? It's much better to do it face-to-face. -face. It's much better to do it in person. You can also reach more people in a more personal way. So that communication was the uh, was the central part, and that's and that when you're running a global organization, obviously we had staff in eight or nine locations around the world. We had volunteers and society members and candidates in a, um, well over a hundred countries around the world. So trying to trying to get to all of those people and influence them um, is 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 tough. Obviously, I didn't do it all my own. I, I had lots and lots of very very good people to help me with that. But, but, you know, unless you've got the energy, unless you've got the commitment to do that, you're always going to fall short. Fortunately, I'm very lucky in that I have abundant energy and um, a huge desire to see the world. So, uh, so the job was tailor-made for me as far as that was concerned. And then rather prosaically, the third thing I would say is, as you kind of indicated, the technology in the organization was very poor um, uh, at every level. Uh, not just in terms, most obviously, of holding the exam, but um, uh, internally the technology was poor. Um, and how did we revamp that? And that's led, obviously, an initiative under started under me, but but the current uh, leadership is very definitely delivering on is changing the way that the exam looks and feels, is delivered and is graded and um, scored. That was uh, absolutely important. So those are the three things: vision, communication, technology. Uh, it, it sounds. I'm sure it, it sounds. It, it sounds very easy, but I'm sure uh, in your characteristic humility, Paul, there's a lot of other things that happened, which uh, which you 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 are not talking about. But but <laughs> let me ask you, how exactly did you make it happen? Because I suspect strongly that embedded in your strategies, um, the things you mentioned, are some very useful lessons in leadership and change management. Well. I, yes, there are. I mean, the hardest thing in life in a business context is to stop doing things that you shouldn't be doing. Mm. Um, because the thing that you're trying to stop usually is a good, is a, it's a good thing. It's not, uh, you know, no one's, no one's deliberately wasting corporate resource, if you like. They just may be doing something that isn't tuned in with the overall vision. 
and as a as a corporation you've only got so much resource you can't do everything you can't you know uh, boil the ocean as it were you have to decide on what's most important and then to focus the organization around that so that's the hardest part is to is to stop doing things that um uh you know are off mission hmm. and obviously that's that's code for saying some people have to be let go and uh you know that's that's uh or retrained or repointed and that's 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 a hard message and that's a hard thing to do particularly in a not-for-profit hmm. where everybody is uh is is you know very well motivated as i said no one's doing something um for for poor reasons um, and there's always a reason for doing things, but to try and get that message through. So, so that's important. So communication of that energy and enthusiasm, getting that buy-in, those are all um, really, really important uh, leadership lessons. Um, you've got to have absolute faith and belief in what you're trying to do, because there will be hard decisions to take. And if you're not if you're not constantly checking yourself and going back to that vision and mission and saying, you know, am I really focusing the organization on delivering that vision or am I taking soft decisions because I don't want to deal with a human problem? Usually I don't want to deal with a human problem. Um, then, you know, that's where you get into a slippery slope and the organization, if you take poor decisions, like that, the organization loses momentum and loses focus. Um, and that's that's really something as a leader that you keep having to keep yourself up to the mark on. Am I, am I really um, pushing through with the talk, really? It's easy to talk. It's easy to intellectualize what you're trying to do. But to deliver on it, uh, means you've got to take some hard decisions and you've 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 got to um, follow through on them. And I think that's you know that's my other leadership lessons is that you should always lead from the front. Um, mm. And there's always dirty work to be done. Yeah. And if there is dirty work to be done, you're the person who needs to do it. Never delegate the difficult stuff. Always do that in person. People deserve that of you. Uh, and uh, as a leader, you need to show that you uh, you lead from the front and you do you do the hard parts because you're going to expect people who work for you to do difficult things as well, and you need to show them that you're prepared to do to do the hard things. The final thing is is you you mentioned you were kind enough to mention the word humility. I think you know I think that comes with age a little bit. We all think <laughs> we're we all think we're we're God's gift to creation when we're in our in our late teens, early twenties, and and I guess the older one gets, the more one realizes just how incompetent one is and how um, uh, uh, how lacking one is in 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 so many regards and how prone to mistake. And so I think um, that's very difficult as a leader as well because uh, people do look up to you. Mm. And they do expect you almost to be infallible. And uh, you're not. And so learning how to apologize for things that go wrong in an organization without demoralizing the organization, without significantly damaging 
your your leadership is very is very hard to do because mm. often people take an apology as a sign of weakness when it's not it's a sign of strength if you do it in the right way and that's a hard that's a communication gift is to be able to say look i screwed up um and uh this was wrong we need to change direction and we need to do something slightly different um and to maintain momentum and to maintain people's belief in you as a leader whilst accepting that you've made mistakes is a really hard trick to do um and and that i think is is something that all leaders need to to think about all politicians very mm. definitely need to think about is how do you how do you apologize because you know we're not infallible no no and with this neatly segues to my next question because you not only left a, not only had a great leadership experience and made an impact but you proved also adept at timing you proved it to be a master at timing because <laughs> you, you, you left cf institute in september 2019 at the end of your term and i must say the timing of your exit was impeccable because cf institute is arguably going through the toughest time in its 60 year existence it's been one issue after another i mean you must have read the papers you know transitioning to computer based exams initially then many locations were cancelled around the world exams delayed on multiple occasions issues with non refundable fees the recent abysmal pass rates for level 1 and level 2 um adverse publicity to the media etc uh what are the three bits of advice you would give your successor mark franklin uh, uh, right well um firstly to say that uh you know I, my timing was impeccable i uh i i jumped ship and handed mark the most awful set of cards for her to play and i i've i've lost a lot of sleep over that i i think it was uh i didn't obviously know what was about to happen um i think there's a lesson there by the way that that you should always uh, i i said when i joined the cfa when i was going to leave and i stuck to that and so i i reaped the reward of not hanging on for too long because the longer you last in a position the more likely something awful is going to happen to you that's that's just uh, uh, that's just uh, uh the way that the world works and so uh so doing what you say and leaving after a uh, a fixed period of time is a good a good lesson to learn so the first thing is that mark mark was dealt an awful set of cards and i i'm i thank my stars every day of the year that i didn't hang on uh to put up with this awful pandemic um and some of the things that she's had to put up with um i would not uh you know i'm not the sort of person uh, so i'm not going to give you anything here binod i'm not the sort of person who leaves an organization and then haunts that organization by criticizing uh from the stands i wouldn't do it to my kids if they were playing sport i'm not one of those parents who stand on the sidelines screaming at them to do better um i'm someone who stands on the sidelines and cheers them on so uh i wish mark nothing but good things and uh, the only piece of advice i would presume to give her was not to listen to yesterday's man to go her own way to have confidence in what she's doing which i'm sure she does and to keep um keep pushing on the path that she has outlined for herself Oh well I was looking forward to some juicy sound bites there Paul you have <laughs> let me down with a thump but maybe maybe you can make up an, the answer to my next question which is about China and Hong Kong because you've yeah. been based in Hong Kong for the past 23 years 
And yep. so I, I hope you don't mind if I regard you as a wise China hand, as they used to say in the olden days. <laughs> and hence, I must ask you this about Chinese uh, tech stocks, particularly, which have been yeah. in the news a lot lately. I mean, two questions that come to my mind is, do you think the free fall in the prices of large cap stocks like Alibaba and Tencent is over? And secondly, uh, probably more importantly, is what is your advice for anyone planning to invest in Chinese equities? Because it sounds like a dreadfully risky, opaque, uh, volatile market. Right. Well, I, I think it's all of those things. Uh, yes. I mean, you, you have to understand in China that obviously government influence uh, is paramount and that if you are unable to understand what the government is doing or is about to do, most importantly, whether that's on the regulatory side or on the fiscal stimulus side or the monetary stimulus side, then you're going to get caught short because the Chinese market primarily is driven by government action um, rather than necessarily by the under, underlying for, fundamentals that we would teach at the CFA Institute. So, mm. so that's, a, that's just a, a general challenge. So to answer the second part of your question first is uh, what you need to do is to be with uh, colleagues or third party managers who have boots on the ground and who are plugged in and connected with um, obviously properly connected as opposed to improperly connected with with what's going on at the government level. Do I think that the, um, uh, the worst is over? Uh, I suspect in tech stocks it probably is. Um, but what we've got is a rolling series of government uh, actions on all sorts of different industries. So it started in the tech stock, then went into education stocks, now is in um, uh, uh, ride-sharing uh, apps and, and other things. Uh, and we'll continue, I think, uh, for a little while yet. I mean, what's happening in China is that, uh, as Xi Jinping, as President Xi has said, uh, it's about trying to make sure that wealth is more fairly spread uh, throughout the uh, the country. Now, you know, in a, in, in a Western sense, we try and do that through fiscal policy and through other mm -hmm. measures. Um, the, the Chinese system is different. They do it through government policy. And that upsets us in the West. But it's a it's a it's just a different methodology, and so um, that's the important part to remember is that it's not good or bad. It's just different in the way that China accomplishes an end that we would all ascribe to, which is which is how do we make sure that the vast wealth creation that's gone on over the last twenty or thirty years in China um, uh, uh, benefits all members of society rather than a few people disproportionately. So the end goal is actually a very worthy one. Uh, the methods are not ours in the West, but that doesn't mean they're not the right methods. So that's what you've got to hang on to. And I think, I think overall, what you have to, uh, the question you have to ask yourself is, are you a China bull or a China bear? And I don't want to uh, persuade anyone of, of either dimension. It's an immensely complicated uh, conversation that obviously involves politics as well as economics. I'm a China bull. I make no apology for that. I believe in China's long-term rise in exactly the same way as I believe in India's long-term rise. Um, it's about uh, demographics, uh, different demographics, China to India. India has actually much more positive demographics than China does, uh, but it's about weight of numbers and it's about mm -hmm. the growth of the economy 
in general and the GDP that that's adding to world wealth. And I think one of the things that we should all do, particularly people in the developed West should do, is to stand back and say, well, what do, what do we wish for here? Do we really want China to succeed or do we want China to fail? Because if it's the latter, we should pause for thought. Because if China fails, we all fail. What other engines of growth are there in the world today if they're not being propelled primarily by Chinese investment and Chinese consumption? And I think that's something that in the West, when we're so negative about China a lot, we need to ask ourselves a few hard questions about, well, what's, where does that lead ultimately? Um, and don't we want China to succeed in the same way that we should all want India to succeed? Because healthy, vibrant economies in India and China are going to allow us in the West to maintain our lifestyles, basically. Otherwise, we're going to have to go out and work. And we clearly don't want to do that. So let's hope that China and India uh, succeed. And I, I personally believe that they will. Uh, both countries will. Uh, and that they'll go from economic strength to strength. But we need to be a little bit more understanding about the differences in the system. We need to be a, much more sensible as investors. Uh, the Chinese capital markets do not work along Western lines. Uh, President Xi has been absolutely explicit in saying that. And so why do we still get shocked when things happen? Hmm. Interesting. Well, uh, all good things must come to an end. And uh, this has been a fascinating interview. It's probably been the longest podcast interview ever. And I've enjoyed every moment of it. Um, but before I let you go, <laughs> I must ask you for some more bits of wisdom from you. And that is, <laughs> what are your three top tips for a youngster planning to enter investment management? Okay. Um, well, I'll give this a go. You did forewarn me about this question, so <laughs> I did have to think about it. I hate these sort of three top, top tip things, but but the, the first thing is to say, I think to everybody, you know, go back to the thing that I said at the start, that it's a long race. Hmm. And it's not where you start that counts, it's where you finish. That's what's most important. And, um, you know, so it's getting your first foot upon the ladder that's important in the business, hopefully, that you want to be in. Don't worry so much if you can't get into if if you know if you want to be uh, at the front of the asset management process. Don't worry if you can't get there to start with. Um, get into an asset management business at whatever level in whatever capacity. If it's in the middle or the back office, and work your way forward to the front office. It's a long old race. You've got lots to learn. You'll be better in the front office if you have gone through the back office. So try and try and remember that that it's it's um, it's not where you start in life that's important. It's where you finish. So so I think that's that's the first thing that I would say. I certainly did that. I started as an accountant, went into an asset management company in the back office, and worked my way forward from the back office to the front office. So it's perfectly possible. It's still possible. You can do it if you navigate the organizations that you're in successfully. Secondly, I think we've mentioned it many, many times during this podcast, never be afraid of change or uncertainty. And in the asset management world, it's not about being afraid of change and uncertainty. It's about embracing change and uncertainty. That's what depresses me more than anything else when I think about the asset management industry is we seem to have forgotten 
that change and uncertainty is where we live. That's where the opportunity is. That's, that's the good stuff. The more uncertainty there is out there, the more change there is out there, the more alpha we can generate. So we want to actively, as asset managers, go to places, countries, uh, or industries where reporting is poor, where people have, you know, 10 different views as to how something might work out. That's where we live. If you know everything, if you know what the future looks like, you're never going to make an investment return that's above the rate of cash. So always be in your mindset, if you want to be a good asset manager, always in your mindset, embrace change and embrace uncertainty. And that's obviously a lesson for life as well. These are good things. These are dynamics that propel humankind forward. And you want to be on the right side of them. You want to be challenging yourself to take advantage of change and uncertainty at all times, professionally and personally. The final thing, which uh, (laughs) connects back to to my wanderlust, if you like, uh, is, is go see for yourself. I think the modern world is set up in a way that we believe that we can, and obviously COVID has contributed to this as well, we believe we can do everything sitting behind a screen. And the types of technical people, as we talked earlier, that we've sucked into the investment management industry are disposed towards that view anyway, that they can see everything that they need to see on a Bloomberg screen or on a YouTube video or some other streaming service. Um, But it's not true Mm. because you're seeing a filtered view of life. You're seeing only what people want you to see. You're not necessarily seeing the whole picture. And the one thing that I can absolutely assure you of is that when you go and visit a company or when you go and visit a country, your view of that company or country will be radically different to the one that you have uh, come to through your desktop research. There is no substitute for going to see for yourself. So those are my three tips. It's, uh, It's not where you start, it's where you finish that counts. Get in and work your ticket. Never be afraid of change and uncertainty. Those are your opportunities and go see for yourself. I think the one that connected with me, with me the most was it's where you finish that counts, not where you start. Because that sort of talks about the journey, isn't it? Not just the destination. Yeah. And that's yeah. No, I, I, I think that's right. And it's also, it's also enjoying that journey as well. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that's what's important about life is that it's always changing. It's a, it's, it is a journey. It is a process. I know it's a cliche, but that's important. And I think, I think the other thing to say, I always said it to my kids, is, you know, when you're choosing your career, go back to that idea of planning and things. You know, very few of us really have passion in terms of, you know, I really want to be this thing. Most of us stumble along into things that are okay, that we're, we're happy with them. They're okay. They, 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 so, but if you take that and you say that 99% of us are that way inclined, then for heaven's sake, be the boss because it's much more fun being the boss than mm. it is being one of the foot soldiers. <laughs> and I always said that to my kids is that's why you work hard is because any job is much more fun when you're at the top oh, yeah. than when you're uh, halfway down the organization or at the bottom of the organization. So it's, as I say, it's where you finish that counts, not where you start. Absolutely. I mean, so much insight, so much inspiration in this uh, delightful interview. 
which I hope youngsters would listen very carefully to and try and implement the many, the many tips um, in, in terms of career and just looking at life as well. And thank you so much, Paul Smith, for taking the Pleasure. time from your busy schedule to prepare for and deliver and, and participate in this, um, in this podcast interview. Uh, and, and I hope uh, your ventures, especially in sustainability, will gain faster traction and uh, more people align to your view and vision about how, how to roll that out and, and make an impact and, and that finance can be a force of good in the world. Thank you. I hope Thank so too, Bernard. Thank you for having me as well. It's been a huge pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed talking about my favorite topic, which is me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you once again. Thank you, Bernard. Bye-bye. This is brought to you by The Real Finance Mentor. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on therealfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binot Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on therealfinancementor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.